that reading open, the second one, Malachi, as we begin our journey, as Pete said, in the lead up to Christmas in uh, this last book of the Old Testament. Uh, Malachi chapter 1, we're only going to get through the first five verses uh, this morning, page 928 if you've shut it, it's well worth uh, opening that again. Uh, we've uh, paused Mark and we're into Malachi, it's book starting with M this year, a couple of years ago it was book starting with R, so I'm not sure what we'll do next year, what letter. Now I, I have the important job of letting you know that uh, Christmas is less than seven weeks away. Uh, and so that's my public service announcement to you. I don't know how many shopping days are left, but it's getting close. And soon the official season of waiting that we call Advent will be upon us, and then we know it really is getting close. I, I know for some, as we enter Advent, you'll be in no rush for Christmas to come. You're quite happy if the waiting takes quite some time. But for others, especially the young and maybe the young at heart, uh, the waiting is pretty hard work. Uh, desperate for that day to come, uh, that feeling of sort of uh, when you actually don't really have a sense when you're a, a little child of how time works and you wake up each day, is today Christmas? Uh, that goes on day after day. Can you imagine if the timing of Christmas was actually uncertain? That uh, we knew it was somewhere near the end of the year, uh, maybe in December, but we weren't 100% sure what day it would be. Uh, can you imagine what that would feel like if you were expecting it, hopeful that it would come? I imagine at first there would be that excitement as you woke up each morning, is today Christmas? And no, it's not, and you wait for the next day. But what if it never seemed to come? What if day after day after day you woke hoping that today was Christmas and yet it wasn't, that December came and went with no sign of its arrival? And then summer came and went with still no sign. I, I imagine that initial excitement and anticipation would give way to just, well, disappointment. In Malachi that we begin together this morning, we come across God's people, Israel, waiting and hoping for the advent, but there is absolutely no sign of its coming. Uh, Malachi, as Pete said earlier, is, is God's word to Israel as they're now back in the promised land. Uh, it's about a generation after the exile, uh, Israel had enjoyed a time in the promised land, some of it uh, gloriously good under the reign of the likes of King David and King Solomon. But after uh, generation and after generation of sin and rebelling against God, they came under God's judgment. And eventually, under God's judgment, they were deported and they were exiled. First, the northern tribes were exiled uh, to Assyria. And then later, uh, the Jerusalem and the southern kingdom were exiled to Babylon. Eventually, under the reign of the Persians, a remnant were allowed to come home to Jerusalem. In fact, they were encouraged to go home and to rebuild Jerusalem. And so they did. And you can imagine the early days of uh, that return home, the, the excitement of it all. If you read books in the Old Testament, like the book of Nehemiah, the, the joy is the walls are rebuilt and then the temple is rebuilt. But as day after day went by and Judah now, this land, uh, a postage stamp of what it used to be and uh, the rebuilt temple, uh, really a poor substitute to the original and the economy under the, the oppression of a foreign ruler just tanking and anxiety and sadness prevalent in society and corruption all throughout society and then the oppression of this foreign ruler as Day after day passed by and there was no sign of the advent, uh, disappointment took over. 
They were a people, as they returned home, driven by this promise from God. He said, if you return to me, I'll return to you. I, myself, I will come. That was the promise, the promise of the Messiah, the promise of Christmas. But those initial days of hope faded, and year after year after year, they waited. Now listen to these words from uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 59. It gives you a sense of what it felt like to be those waiting at that time. Now they said this, We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. We're, we're like the blind groping along the wall, feeling our ways like people without eyes. Uh, big promises, but no sign of them. And so there in the dark, as they waited and waited and waited, the Lord spoke to them. Malachi is actually his last word, God's last word, for some 400 years before the advent arrives. I mean, what could the Lord possibly say that is weighty enough and strong enough to carry a people another 400 years for this hope? Well, Malachi is that word. Now, before we hear that word, uh, I want you to consider for a moment as we embark on this book together, consider your own context as you, as you listen to God speak here. Uh, we are those who, I guess, have the privilege of knowing that that Advent did arrive, of knowing that what we'll celebrate at Christmas did happen, that Christ was born at Christmas and he was born to carry our sins for our forgiveness. We know that Advent came. And we are those who live with this promise that he'll come again. We look forward to a, a second advent when he will come not to bear sins, but he'll come for our salvation. He'll, he'll come as judge. He'll come to make all things new. And we wait for that day. And this is how the book of Hebrews chapter 9 puts it. Christ was sacrificed once for all to take away the sins of many. That's the first advent. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. We are those who wait for that day when this broken world will be wrapped up and he will make all things new as he has promised. And how long have we been waiting? Well, over 2,000 years. I mean, what could the Lord possibly say that's strong enough, weighty enough to carry us as we wait for that day? Well, again, Malachi is that word. Uh, Malachi really, if you look on the outline there, is the Lord's advent gift to those who wait. Uh, those who wonder, is it worth being one of God's people? Is it worth being one who says, I'm waiting for that? It's his last word that he will say to Israel before they will hear his son cry out from that crib that first Christmas. And the word he brings, if you've got Malachi open there, have a look at verse 1. He brings a, an oracle, it says there, and really what that word means is a burden. It's, it's a weighty word. There's nothing trivial in what God will say. There's no idle chit-chat. And this is a word that when it's received and heard properly should cause those who hear it to tremble. Now here's the word. You see it there, verse 2? I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. A love there is a verb in the, in the perfect tense, speaking of a love that began a long time ago for this people and it's carrying right through to the present. It's an ongoing love. I have loved you, he says. Isn't that remarkable? What, what's weighing on the Lord's heart as he, as he looks at this people and as he uh, uh, speaks to them? What, what would he say? Uh, 
as we look at Malachi, the, the people that he's speaking to are these people, people who have not loved him. People who, verse 2 of our passage, doubt that he loves them. People, if you go uh, to verse 7 of chapter 1, who are half-hearted in their service of him. People who are casual with the truth, we'll see in chapter 2, who, who constantly break their covenant relationship with the Lord, who, who are unfaithful in their own relationships, we'll see in chapter 2, and who are just downright stingy. I mean, what are you going to say to a people like that? Well, do you hear what the Lord says? I have loved you. And so do the obvious question as God's people hear that, as they wait in the darkness, as they grope along as if people without eyes. Do you see what their question is? How? <laughs> Lord, our eyes can't see your love. You, you talk about loving us, but I, I can't see it. Where's the evidence? They've returned to the land. They've worked hard to obey God. They've, of course, fallen short of that, but they're trying. And they, they've built the walls and the temple at huge cost to themselves. And they've struggled along under this foreign rule. Uh, they've waited for his coming. How have you loved us? The advent seems a distant promise. You know what, Lord, right here, right now, that's our question. How? Show us the evidence. Now, Israel asks this question, how, based on their experience, and it's legitimate, isn't it? There's a, they're in a tiny postage stamp compared to what they used to be of a land. A disappointing temple, financial trouble, sadness, unfaithfulness, corruption, oppression. How have you loved us? They measure God's love by the provision, or perhaps lack thereof, of their legitimate needs, of their reasonable hopes, of their good longings. How, how have you loved us when none of these things are happening? can't see your love, God. Well, let me ask you as we see them ask that question, how, how do you know God loves you? I mean, if, if someone was to ask you that, uh, uh, just thinking over your past, perhaps even just the recent past, last year or so, what, what are the signs that you've seen, the, the pieces of evidence that you say, that's how I know God loves me? As you think back over your past or your present, uh, when have you felt Ah, now I know God really loves me, that he's for me. And when have you perhaps felt the opposite? When have you questioned that love? Do you feel that in the present or perhaps the past that he is providing your legitimate needs, that if he is a good and loving God, your reasonable hopes, that he sees and, and acknowledges your good longings, or is it your heart saying, right now, Lord, you seem uninvolved and uninterested and absent? How have you loved us? I reckon it's uh, crucial as we uh, hear this word of Malachi to, to be able to discern in the present and perhaps looking at our past what God is actually doing in our life. To be able to look at our life and see how God is at work and to know what it means. And I think if we base that on what we feel or on perhaps a, a season or an experience that we have, our answer may swing wildly dependent on the season. Such that at times we would want to echo the words that Israel asks here, how have you loved me? Well, let's look at the Lord's answer to Israel. And I think his answer is crucial in reframing our own question as well. Our view on uh, the, the presence and uh, perhaps the constancy of the Lord's love to us 
It cannot be measured by how we feel, uh, how we experience life in the present or the past, or, or indeed what we may wish our future to be. If you want to see the Lord's loving hand at work in your life, don't rely on the feelings of your heart or the winds of circumstance that come at you. Base it on what God has said of your past, what he is saying of your present, and what he says of your future. And I think only then can we see our life and his love through the lens of the unbreakable promises that he has made and he proves faithful to over time. A word that will stand forever, whatever we experience. And so what's his word to those who, well, to quote Isaiah again, look for light but all is darkness? Let's listen as this forever word brings light. Here it is, verse 2. He simply says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. If you want to know God's love, says the Lord, you've got to see the difference it makes to be loved by God. A short-term experience won't reveal that to you. Your, your feelings will dispute it at points, but here is God speaking it. There it is again. Let me read it again. Verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved you, Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, an important clarification as we look at this, these two paths of these two brothers, Jacob and Esau, uh, elsewhere in scripture, th- this sort of division of love and hate is, is used to speak of uh, things that are loved more and loved less. Jesus will do that in, in the Gospels. He will speak of us putting him first above all else. And the words he'll use is the difference between love and hate. It's a priority thing. But I want to suggest to you that in this case, that makes no sense. Now, if you follow the path of these two brothers and their descendants, the reality is even if the Lord loves you a little... You are loved abundantly. But that's not Esau's experience. When trying to understand the Lord's love and hate here, we must not use the categories of human emotion, human love and human hate. That's not what's going on here at all. The Lord's love and hate come from a far more profound and far more stable place. They concern his sovereign choosing, based not on the lovability of the object, but solely on his holy character. That's what we're going to see. So let's trace firstly the path of the Lord's love for Jacob. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, yet I have loved you, Jacob. The love that he has for Jacob, these two brothers born of the same mother, twins in the womb together, the love for Jacob is an unconditional love, a sovereign love. God chose to love Jacob. It took no account of birthrights. Uh, Esau was the older, older brother with the right to the inheritance. Uh, it took no account of the whims of the parents. If you read in Genesis 25, it, the parents favoured Esau. It took no account of the fact that Jacob was a moral failure and so were his descendants. It took no account of any of that. God proves his love to Jacob and his descendants Israel by retelling their family story personal you were brothers Jacob do you remember that you had a twin there in the womb with you and yet I chose you Jacob to carry the hope and fears of all eternity I gave that to you 
All that I had promised to Abraham, when I promised Abraham that I would bless the nations through him, all the world through him, I gave you that to carry. I could have chosen either of you. There was no distinction between you, none better than the other, both broken, both under judgment, but Jacob, I chose to set my love on you. That's a mysterious choice. And it should make us tremble. The Lord calls it to Jacob's mind here so that uh, he can know this. You want to know for sure that I love you, Jacob? Out of all the world, I set my eyes on you. I bound my heart to you for eternity. I made an unbreakable promise to you. I have loved you. And you trace the path of Jacob's experience and you see that play out. Uh, When you were oppressed in Egypt, I heard your cry, I remembered you. I rescued you and I judged Pharaoh. I cleared the path for you in the wilderness. Do you remember that? I gave you my law and I I dwelt with you. I forgave you as you bowed down before the golden calf there at the foot of Mount Sinai. I loved you. I endured your endless grumbling in the wilderness. I placed you safe in the land. I sent judge after judge to deliver you when your sin caused you to wander away. I sent the prophets to guide you. I held off the exile for generation after generation and then when finally you went into exile, I went with you. And now I've brought you home again. Out of all the world, I set my eyes on you freely, sovereignly, unconditionally. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now I want to say, Christian, if you're listening as the Lord speaks to his people here in Malachi, I need to ask you this. Does it make you tremble that you... Even you are in on this. Does it cause you to wonder at the miracle that he has chosen to love you? (laughs) It had nothing to do with you. You're an heir of this same family story uh, by grace. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 puts it this way. He says of us, the church, he says, from the beginning I chose you. The Lord says to those who are by faith in Jesus Christ, I have loved you. You have peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. You have freedom of being counted righteous in my sight. You have complete access to my throne in prayer. You've got my very spirit in you, guaranteeing what I promise is to come. Uh, You can call me Father, and you are my dearly loved children. I have loved you. And then these words from Romans 8 that Lionel read for us before as we sang, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of the Lord that is ours in Christ Jesus. I have loved you, says the Lord. But back to Malachi chapter 1, and don't miss this. You see, God's proof of his love for Jacob and his descendants Israel doesn't focus on a long list of events in history as I've listed there. It actually focuses primarily on the contrast of the path that Jacob's life has taken compared to Esau's. And so let's watch Esau's path now, verses 3 onwards. Basically, the Lord says, in the face of Jacob's question, how have you loved me? He simply says this, look at your brother. 
Yes, Israel was waiting and they were tired of waiting, but they were waiting for salvation. Esau's path is different. It's as different as, uh, I read Hebrews 9.28 before. If you, if you flick open Hebrews 9, you'll see the difference in just two verses. 9.27, one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. Man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. That's the path. And then the path in 9.28. Uh, the one, the God who has carried our sins, the God who has borne them completely, the God who is coming again for our salvation. Those paths are very different. And for God, this is personal. Do you notice that as he speaks of Jacob and Esau, he, he doesn't go first to call them the nation that Esau became, Edom, in verse 4. Before he gets to that, he repeatedly says to Jacob, this is Esau we're talking about, your brother. It's personal. You know, the Lord would never trace this path that Esau takes, and many in our world take dispassionately. If you read the Apostle Paul in Philippians, when tracing the same path that we see here in verses 3 to 5, he says this, I now say with tears that many live as enemies of God. And so let's look at the path of the Lord's hate for Esau. Firstly, his past, verse 3. I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and I have left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now the Lord's response to Esau I have opposed him. And while it is the Lord's sovereign choice to do that, it's not a decision to judge an innocent, and this is crucial to see. Esau is guilty. And some of the guilt he has is related to his treatment of his own brother Jacob. Uh, If you look at the the moment that uh, Israel uh, leave Egypt to go to the Promised Land, the thing between them and the Promised Land is the land that Edom hold, and Edom refuses to let them through. And then when the exile comes, uh, this tragic moment for God's people, there on the hills all around Jerusalem, there is Edom cheering on the attackers and piling in. Now listen to this from Obadiah, speaking of what Esau did in the days of the exile. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. On the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off their wealth and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not have boasted in the day of your brother's distress or looted his wealth in the day of his calamity or stood at the crossroads and cut off his survivors. God hates injustice. It is part of his love for his people. He remembered and now he judges. Now I think we get the Lord's opposition here. At first I think we balk at the idea that a God of love would hate But I think there's things we hate too, aren't there? I mean, you think about the things that have been dominating our media in recent years. Think about the sort of things that, as a nation, our government has been forced to have royal commissions over. Uh, We rightfully, as a nation, hate institutional abuse that has been in the spotlight over these recent years. We hate it. We rightfully hate the tragic mistreatment of those who are vulnerable in our care facilities. We hate it. And I think in this hatred, we feel something of the Lord's hatred of injustice. Don't you want justice? Don't you want these things to be judged properly rather than there be permission? And so I find it incredibly comforting to know that the Lord hates it too and that he will judge and that he will remember and none of it will be forgotten. And here at last we have a judge who has the power and the knowledge and the right to judge properly. But again... 
And this should cause Jacob and I think we with him to tremble. Because the Lord is holy, to ask him to hate sin and to judge it is to ask him to deal with us too, isn't it? And so again, tremble at the difference that his free and sovereign and unconditional choice to love you has made. Tremble that the Lord made him who knew no sin to be sin for you. Tremble that the Lord can declare over your life because of your faith in the Lord Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. I have loved you, says the Lord. It is as the old preacher Spurgeon brilliantly said, upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. I have loved you, said the Lord. But what of Esau's present? Well, have a look at verse 4. They may rebuild, but I will demolish. The Lord's opposition of them is not temporary, it's ongoing. Uh, when they resist his judgment, he will tear down their plans and prosperity. Uh, Edom, as you read of them in the scriptures, were a proud people. They, they lived in the sort of the mountains uh, of the Transjordan. It was an area that they thought was impregnable to attack. Nothing could touch them. But before the Lord, human pride and security are an illusion. Uh, this is the Lord's judgment on the people of Edom. The reality is, history will show, if you look, read the book of Obadiah, that some within Edom are saved, individuals within Edom, men and women and children from that nation, take refuge in the love of the living God uh, and they are rescued. But as a nation as a whole, opposed to God, God simply says, I will oppose you. No matter how many times you try to rebuild, I will tear it down. And I want to say that is the constant message of Scripture. If you live life in proud autonomy, in rebellion against God, you will be opposed. It's the story of Babel in Genesis 11 as the nations band together against God. Uh, he, he tears that down. It's the story of 21st century secularism, as, as loud and proud as it is. It's the story of Psalm 2. If you read there, again, the nations conspiring against the Lord, the Lord's response, he laughs. And speaking of Jesus, he says, I have installed my king on Zion, on my holy mountain, and he will never be dethroned. Part of the Lord's judgment is to give Edom over to their own sin. You see there, verse 4? They will be called the wicked country. And again, the Lord does not here bring judgment against an innocent. He brings judgment on the guilty. He is just in his dealings. When he passed over Esau and chose Jacob, there was no decree that an innocent Esau would be judged. That's not what's happening. Rather, the Lord chose to pass over a man who had already chosen the path of wickedness. If you uh, go all the way back to Genesis 25, we see the start of that path as Esau, who has his birthright, the blessing of the Lord before him, and trades it in for what? A bowl of soup. It's a picture of the fatal choice all humanity makes. If you read the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, it talks of that same trade as we trade the truth of God in for a lie. And like Esau, the Lord's response is to give humanity over to that wickedness. But Jacob, who like his twin walked in the way of wickedness, and we with him is told that this as he questions the Lord's love. Weren't you Jacob's brother? Weren't you Adam's brother? But I have loved you, says the Lord. 
And at this, we should tremble, I think. Consider the difference his love makes. Now, let me make this personal for a moment as we move towards a close. You know, every time I read Malachi 1 and I see that question from the Lord in verse 2, uh, I think of my own family. Uh, I think as the Lord speaks this word of myself as the only Christian out of three siblings, my older brother, my younger sister, and I hear this every time I read it, Andrew, was not Charles your brother? Weren't you born of the same womb? Didn't you both have Christian parents? Uh, didn't you both go to the same youth group and hear the same talks year after year? You, you heard it all together. Andrew, I have loved you. Now, I'm not saying that he will not set his love on my older brother or on my younger sister. That's my daily prayer because I know the Lord plays a long game. However, when I think about my own life and what the Lord has done and I trace this path of his electing love for me, it makes me tremble and stop in my tracks should I ever be tempted to ask the Lord, given my current experience, how have you loved me? Finally, trace the path of the future for Esau very briefly, very simply, but very tragically. Verse 4, they will be a people always under the wrath of the Lord. To be loved by the Lord is to be saved and loved forever. To be hated by the Lord is to be destroyed and judged forever. These paths are very different. So as we conclude, think about how we're meant to respond to this. Uh, think back to our own context. Think back to the context of Israel as they ask, how have you loved us? They're in the silence. They're in the midst of fading hope, stumbling in the dark, wondering if, if God still loves them. God spoke, I've loved you. It's a word to carry tired hearts, isn't it? Word for those waiting on the advent. It's a, it's a word to humble hearts as we see the sheer depth of God's love for us. And it's a word to take away any presumption that we deserve to be loved. And a word to pull back the ground if we boast as Christians that we're standing on our own two feet. And a word that should make us tremble with awe that you, even you, are loved. And that the Lord, he is great, even beyond the borders of Israel, even to the very ends of the earth, even in Wurunga. Here's a word for those who wait. You know, 400 years after Malachi speaks these words, uh, we read these words in Luke 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, and he was waiting. Waiting, we're told, there on the consolation of the Lord. He's waiting for the advent, 400 years later. He kept waiting. He was 90 years old, as Luke 2 is written, holding on to that word. And finally, Luke 2, we read this. Uh, a young woman walks into the temple where Simeon is serving. Uh, she walks in to dedicate her newborn child. And Simeon looks and he sees this child. And it's like all the lights of history come on. And he takes the child in his arms. And you, you can imagine the excitement. It's, it's like this Christmas morning. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen the advent which you prepared in the sight of all the nations. I have loved you, says the Lord. Well, let's pray together. Just encourage you to take a moment of quiet as we think about this as it says in verse 1, weighty word from our God. And as we prepare to sing of his love 
for us. Let me pray this prayer, and I'm really just going to pray a prayer using the words of one of my favourite songs. So let's pray together. One day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the skies with his glories will shine. One day my beloved is bringing. Glorious Saviour, this Jesus is mine. Living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sin far away, rising he justified, freely forever. One day he's coming, O glorious day. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Let's sing together how deep the Father's love.